Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys. So glad that you're here as we are moving into the dog days of summer. Um, I don't know if you know, you probably do, many of you, but I discovered this week that Georgia is the seventh wettest state in the United States. Do you know that? We get the seven, seventh most rainfall. Did you know that we get more rainfall than Washington, more rainfall than Oregon? Never would have imagined it, right? We also have some of the most glorious waterfalls in the United States, which I hear and read about, but plan to see many of them soon. So I look forward to, to doing a little bit of that with our family this summer. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 again. We will finish next week our series that we've been in, going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but we've got this week and next week left, so we'll be in Matthew chapter 7 again today. I know that many of you saw, as I did this last week, the collapse of uh, a large section of that condo in Surfside, Florida. Such a tragic, tragic, tragic um, event there. And I hope that you will be in prayer and continue to be in prayer uh, for so many families still missing. These are real people, real families, real lives, real men and women and children. As of about 20 minutes ago, there are still 156 people unaccounted for, and first responders and civic leaders there are beginning to brace the families for the likelihood that, that probably very few uh, will be pulled from the rubble um, after this time. So I just ask you to continue to pray for them and remember them as you uh, spend time with the Lord. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Last week we saw Jesus speak about uh, two different gates, a wide gate and a narrow gate, and we saw him talk about a wide path and a narrow path. Today we're going to see him talk about two different kinds of leaders or spiritual teachers, prophets, and two different kinds of followers as well. Next week we'll conclude by Jesus uh, teaching us about two different foundations upon which we build our lives. It's going to be a really significant text, especially for the time that we find ourselves in our culture. We'll read in just a few minutes verses 15 through 23. Uh, for now, you can just keep your finger there or follow along uh, on, the, on the screen. But I want to say a couple things. We live in a culture of sound bites, right? Uh, it's amazing uh, what people will share with you, and then you say, oh, man, where did, you, where did you read that, or where did you hear that? And well, uh, my friend told me they saw it on TikTok. Somebody on TikTok posted that they had seen it on a tweet shared by a friend who said they read it in the Washington Post or something like that, right? We are a culture of sound bites, but some sound bites are just colloquialisms. They're, they're ways of expressing cultural truths or values, um, some of them around the words and deeds in our lives go like this, and especially between the integrity between word and deed. Um, you heard phrases like, talk is cheap, right? Talk is cheap. You've got that friend that's telling you he's going to run a marathon this year, but he's told you that for the past 13 years. So you're like, just tell me after you run it, right? Send me a picture when you finish, because you've been telling me this. So talk is cheap. I have a friend who's a, a prominent uh, pastor, uh, evangelical pastor, and uh, the second year in Greek, we were second year Greek students 
uh, graduated from the same uh, undergraduate university. We came in that second year and sat down in Greek and we're talking about our summers. Hey, how'd your summer go? How'd your summer go? What'd you do? We went here, we went there. Um, and then he said, you know what? He said, dude, I'm getting serious this year academically. I'm going to push myself straight A's. I want to learn. I'm going to drink in knowledge. Um, I want to be present in class where I am. I'm going all out. I said, that's awesome. Our professor came in. He kind of settled down. We began to start class. My buddy turned around and said, hey, you have any paper or a pen or anything? Because um, he hadn't brought anything to class with him, right? Talk is cheap. Um, shut up or stand up. You hear that sometimes. Shut up or stand up. Just don't talk about something. Do something with it if you're that conflicted. Sometimes one of the newer ones over the past five or six or eight years has been, don't talk about it, be about it. Now the truth is, if we are about something, we talk about it also. But it, these are just phrases that speak to our longing to see cohesiveness and integrity between what people say they believe and what they do with their lives. Now, so that we can all be on a level ground this morning, can we all admit there are things that we believe and we believe in that we simply lose strength or discipline toward when it comes to, to living it out off and on across our days? Would we all agree with that? There are things that someone could look at you and go, you say you believe this, and yet you're not living that. So we're all on a level ground here, but overall... We want to see, and hopefully we want to live with a cohesiveness and an integrity between our words and our deeds. Jesus is about to address two different kinds of people in one passage here. He's going to address people who are intentionally deceivers. They intentionally seek to deceive genuine followers of Jesus. And then he's going to talk about people who are self-deceivers. It's not so much that they're seeking to deceive others in their attempts to follow Jesus, but they are self-deceivers. They are talking to themselves and preaching lies to themselves about their real condition before God. Let's pick this up and look at Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. Now, a prophet, as Jesus is speaking about here, is simply one who uh, professes to teach or to speak on behalf of God. On behalf of God. He's, he's speaking now to the spiritual leaders, the teachers and preachers among the people of God. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Jesus moves immediately into an animal metaphor. And he says, they, they come to you looking like one of you. But really, they're just clothed like you. They've just put on a veneer, a facade of being a follower of Jesus, of being a believer in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. But inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. Jesus wouldn't buy into a lot of the cultural sensitivity that we have today about the use of words. Now, some words, right, we need to be sensitive with regard to our use of them as we talk with people. But Jesus typically called things what they were. And this was a powerful statement for him to say, there are false teachers and prophets among you who are actually ferocious wolves. And remember where he's giving, he's giving this talk, he's, he's giving this message in an agrarian culture 
where people knew what sheep herders did to wolves if they could get their hands on them, right? They didn't try to, to restore them, right? They, they didn't give them self-help books. They killed them. Now, this is not a license to kill false teachers if you find them in the church. But don't miss the strength of Jesus' language here. He's saying, pay attention. Wolves don't enter a herd of sheep but to kill them in time. That's the only reason wolves are there. And he says, there are wolves among you and wolves going to come among you who are going to wrap themselves up in the appearance of being like you, but they are not of you. Then he moves from an animal metaphor to a plant metaphor. He says, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Again, Jesus is comparing these false teachers to thorn bushes or thistles. One of the things I love about Georgia, maybe I haven't been in the right parts yet, right? But compared to where I grew up in Texas and most of where I lived, there's not near as much thorny stuff here. But if you grow up in an area where you're um, a, a country person and you live and work outside, you absolutely hate thorn bushes and thistles and briars and things like that. Because anytime you get close to them, they prick you, they cut you, they destroy you. You get tangled up in their likeness. Jesus is saying, be very, very careful. False prophets come to injure. Verse 17, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a, a picture, a statement of judgment. Thus, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. So Jesus is walking us through this reality of true and false prophets. And then he moves into true and false followers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I, I have to tell you, this, this passage caused me a lot of wrestling for a number of years when I, was, when I was younger. Because I read Jesus' words and I saw him saying, uh, it made sense that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father. Right? Only those who manifest that there's been an internal change. But then he goes on and he, and he says that they're going to cry out to me. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name and we did this in your name and we did this in your name. Which looks like to me or looked like to a younger me that they were doing the will of the Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus tells them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, get out of my presence, you evil doers. And it wasn't until 
wrestling with it and praying through it and studying, I realized they were actually pleading a works-based salvation. They were saying, Lord, look what we did for you. Lord, look at our works. They, they weren't coming before Jesus saying, Lord, but I trusted you. I put my life in your hands. I gave myself to you. I confess you, not just with my mouth, as the Son of God, Savior of the world, and Lord of my life, but I believed it. They're saying, look, look at all the stuff we did. And we did it in your name. And Jesus not only says, apart from me, I never knew you, but he calls them evildoers. So whatever they were doing with regard to their religious works was overshadowed in a way that maybe those around them couldn't see, but God certainly could by a life characterized by evil doing. By evil doing. If you've been around for a while, uh, you've been able to see the fall of some people like that who maybe had large public ministries. We went through the, the television version of this in the 80s and early 90s, but underneath the veneer of all that was a tremendous amount of evil doing that brought shame on the name of Jesus' church. Jesus is saying, watch out not only for false prophets, but be careful about self-deception as well. The central truth of this passage is simply this, that what our lives produce, what our lives produce over time, reveals the truth of what we believe. What our lives produce over time reveals the truth of what we believe. I remember being in a conference uh, one time with an author, speaker, a pastor uh, who'd written a book, and, and he talked about the, the difference in what we want other people to think we believe, what we think we believe, and what we actually believe. And part of what he said, and I think he's absolutely right, is what we actually believe drives our behavior and our decisions. Day in and day out. Now, there are two dangers here with a passage like this. The first is simply not taking seriously what Jesus is saying. And I would say that this uh, is a most prevalent danger for those of us who've been around the church a long time and by God's grace have been fairly centered on what he's done for us and not what we do for him. And if you're not careful, you can end up misusing God's grace to excuse sin and excuse a lifestyle of uncommitted living to him of undisciplined living as a follower of Jesus. When we don't take seriously not just what Jesus says here, but what he said throughout his ministry and what we find throughout the word of God with regard to the connection between what we say we believe and our lifestyle, our decisions, our works. But the second danger is misunderstanding what Jesus is saying here. And I want to say a couple of things about that. Jesus is not talking about people who follow him imperfectly he's not talking about people who follow him sincerely but imperfectly could we just all agree that that's all of us who are attempting to follow jesus seriously we're going to seek to follow him but we're going to do so imperfectly 
That's not who Jesus is addressing. But those who intentionally deceive others or themselves about their relationship with God. Another way that we may misunderstand this is Jesus is, he is not um, a proponent here. He is not suggesting a workspace salvation, but a salvation that so interrupts and changes us that it leads us to a different kind of living and thinking and speaking. That the power of God so indwells us that our life produces different kinds of work and different kinds of fruit than is able to be produced by those who are not followers of Jesus. And with his, with his uh, a plant metaphor here, what Jesus is reminding us that the, is that the root determines the fruit. Right? The fruit doesn't determine the root. The, the, the fruit reveals the root. If you're picking peaches, we talked about this a few weeks ago, it's probably a safe bet that you're picking peaches from a peach tree. No matter what the tree may identify as. It is a peach tree. Right? That's how God designed it. That's how God created it. Therefore, the fruit that it bears is going to be peaches. Same with apples or cherries. The cherries grow in trees. I don't even know bushes. Wherever they grow, I know a lot of berries grow in bushes. I'm going to get back to the text because I don't, I don't know where fruit grows. Uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight has been a mentor of mine for some time. And this, this statement by him so interrupted me, I had to dwell with it for a little while before saying, man, he's exactly right. Scott says in a way that only Scott can do that sort of interrupts you and causes you to think about things, which is the gift of a really good teacher. He says, we may be saved by faith, but we are judged by works. Every judgment seen in the Bible is a judgment by works. And I wrestled with that for a while, and then I began to think through Scripture. I thought, man, McKnight is exactly right. Not because the works make us right before God, but because the accumulation of Christ-centered, God-glorifying, grace-revealing works and fruit across the years of our life reveal the truth of what we say we believe. D.A. Carson puts it in a way that may be more palatable, palatable to us if we don't want to wrestle with it. He says, what a person believes must sooner or later manifest itself in what he or she does. What a person believes must sooner or later manifest itself in what he or she does. Carson is exactly right. Here's the struggle, though, if you think about this. All kinds of people can do good works, can they not? Some of the most philanthropic people in our nation and in the world are absolutely unsaved, non-Christian, non-Bible-believing people. And yet they give immense amounts of time and more money than we will all in here together see probably across our lifetimes, unless some of you younger folk do really well. Um, they give away to feed the hungry and to um, help uh, produce clean water sources in developing countries. Right? Saved people and unsaved people can feed hungry people, can they not? Yeah, yeah. People who love Jesus and people who don't trust and don't like Jesus can clothe and care for the poor. So what is Jesus getting at here as he's talking about the fruit that our lives will bear? 
the works that characterize followers of his. I want us to know what works look like biblically. What an understanding of works that is biblically faithful teaches us. And you get at that by looking at context. Let me just talk about the immediate context here. If you look back at verse 12, Matthew 7, 12, you see the immediate context of what Jesus is talking about with regard to fruit. He says, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. And here's the key. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This sums up the totality of God's revealed word. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Which we know as what? The golden rule. Yes, the golden rule. Now, this had been around for centuries in the negative form. Until Jesus' day. And his record of turning it positive is the first one we have in history. It had been long said, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. But that's a very different statement than do to others what you would like them to do to you. So the immediate context is this, is this treating of others as a way of life, empowered by the Spirit of God, the way that you would like to be treated. It's a proactive thing. Now, I don't want, just want to give you the immediate context because I don't think that completely helps us understand the fullness of what Jesus gets at when he talks about works. Let's look at the wider context within the Gospels. Uh, back just a few chapters in Matthew 22, we find another statement around this idea of what it is that sums up the law and the prophets. Many of you will know this as as the great commandment or the greatest commandment. Some of you who are, are newer to church and newer to the Bible and newer to uh, pursuing and questioning and thinking about God may not yet. But let's look at these words. Verse 36 of Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now what they're saying is what is the irreducible minimum, right? This is what your kids are asking themselves when you say go clean your room. They're saying, what is the irreducible minimum that must be done so that my parents might be satisfied and may not return to my space? Irreducible minimum. Jesus replies, verse 37, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We've really drifted from that latter part in modern Western, Western Christianity. Verse 38, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now hear this language again, reaching back to Matthew 7, 12. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In a sense, Jesus is saying, if you get these right, you'll get everything else right. If you can love God with all that you are, and you can love others, like you love yourself, then the, the other things will work themselves out across the time. Jesus is saying that love is the theological center of Christ followers. We do what we do out of love. Part of the weird place that we're in, uh, in our country right now, and it will collapse because it's completely built on a false foundation. In fact, it's beginning to collapse a little. Some of the madness 
uh, and cultural strangeness that we've seen over the last four or five years. Part of why we're where we are is culturally we accepted this idea that if you love someone, you must affirm everything they say or believe. That's absolutely not true. At any level, real, genuine love seeks to know and understand and to live out the truth for the glory of God and the good of others. Affirming things that you know not to be true is not love. It's disregard. It's disregard. So this is the wider context in the gospel deals with love for God and love for others. And here's what's so amazing to me. Here's what I find so intriguing. Jesus was not asked what's the most important commandment and then what's, what's next, was he? He was just asked what's primary. But he, he could not separate in his mind our love for God with our love for others. I wish that were so with us. That, that we as a church were known by how well we loved people instead of how quickly we want to change them. God is the only one who's in the change business, people. We can't change ourselves. We can't change each other. You can't change your spouse. You can't change your kids. God is the one who's in the change business. Now, let's stop one more time in the New Testament. Let's look at the wider context of works and this fruit in the New Testament. Galatians 5, a passage that will be familiar to some of you, not so to others. But Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, and I'll just say this as I I read this. Um, If you're newer to faith, you may not know this. If you're familiar with the Bible, because the Gospels come first in the Bible. But the letters of Paul were written first. So Paul was already out doing ministry, was already writing and had written his letters before the apostles and the leaders of the church began to die, began to come under systematic persecution from Rome and be executed. And some of those who'd walked most closely with Jesus in the early church thought, huh, maybe we got it wrong about the time and day of Jesus' return. Imagine that. Maybe he's not coming back as soon as we thought, and we need to put to paper our experience with him and then guided by the Spirit of God and overseen by his eternal sovereign nature, they did that and and made up the Gospels, the so-called biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Paul's letters are already circulating by this time. They're in play. And Paul was already helping the church understand the the different ways that lives are, are characterized. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and following, Paul's contrasting those who live in Christ and live out of love for Christ with those who don't. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying 
each other. When Jesus says against such things there is no law, or not Jesus, I'm sorry, when Paul says that, part of what Paul is saying is, again, the law and the prophets, all of God's requirements, God's standing, God's revealed will for us as human beings is summed up in the truth of a life characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And fruit here is singular, right? Not plural. This is one, it's like a passion fruit. You can't figure out what it is. It's just a, a bunch of stuff in there, right? It's not that you're like, man, God's given me three of those, but I'm out on the rest. Um, it's that they should be growing and be being cultivated by the Spirit of God in your life day in and day out, day in and day out. This is the wider context of what the fruit or the works of a believer's life looks like. So that whatever it is you're about is being guided and characterized by these characteristics here. So how, how do we do this, right? How do we live in such a way that our lives manifest this kind of fruit? That our lives are characterized by the kind of works that reveal us to be men and women of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't happen accidentally, right? You're not going to go tonight and wake up holy tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. It would be nice. It would be nice if you're like, as long as I have this supply of pills, I remain holy. But that's not the case. Some of you may need some pills to help you remain holy. But they're not going to make you holy. I suggest to you that this has everything to do with the proper connection to God in our lives. John chapter 15, a much beloved passage of scripture for many people in the church. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his crucifixion resurrection and ascension back to God the Father. And in verse 5 of chapter 15 of John, Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, which he's already promised them to do, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, obviously, we know that people live apart from Christ and do all kinds of things all day. They're walking all around the planet today. What you and I can't do is anything of God apart from Christ. We can't do any work that is not centered in and on ourselves. The proper connection means being rooted in Christ and remaining there. Don't miss Jesus' emphasis here. He's talking about our consistently coming to him day in and day out and letting the risen Christ wrap his arms around us and reassure us of who we are in God. Let us experience his love, which then flows out of our lives into the lives of others, being rooted, being attached and staying attached as the branches to the vine that nourishes us and that feeds us. A couple of weeks ago, Jake and I did sort of a, a walking inventory of the building. We uh, took some time and walked through every single room, kind of noting what was in there, what was outdated, what needed to be taken down and changed, what rooms were being used, what rooms were currently empty. And we walked into uh, a room that's not being used over here above the children's area. 
a small room, and there was a plant in there, like a tropical-looking green plant that was all withered, and the leaves were hanging right down beside it. it they had a big old pot in there, and I thought, oh, man, I, like, I love super green tropical plants. I like to sit down by it and pretend that I'm in Hawaii. Um, so I had mercy on this plant. I ran across to the bathroom, filled up a big, uh, there was a coffee pot. We own like 390 um, as a church. So I grabbed a, uh, I grabbed a coffee pot, went over there, filled it up with water, watered the plant, went back, filled it up again, watered it again. The next day, we were running back through some rooms with some other staff looking at some things, and I went in there. And you cannot imagine the difference in this plant. I thought I'd gone into the wrong room because the, all of the leaves and the stems were up and were bright, and it was amazing. I wish human transformation happened that quickly. Um, I walked out and said, this must be because there were two plants, and one's in a room that's being used, and it's being taken care of. And I had to walk away, no, this is the plant. You know, it was amazing. But I'm telling you, friends, when you pull yourself out of active, intentional time with Jesus day in and day out, you wither. You wither. Jesus says, remain in me. Be rooted in Christ. Second thing is, not only do we need to be rooted in Christ, we need to be compelled by Christ's love. Look at 2 Corinthians Verse 14, we'll read 14 through 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Now, if you've got a translation that says, for your love of Christ compels you, or your love for Christ, can I just say with gentleness, that's wrong, Right? It, the active agent here is the love of Christ compelling us, not our love for Christ. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. There's a reason that we say we exist. That the beginning part, which we'll preach through um, in the fall, the beginning part of our mission statement as a church says we exist to glorify God by helping all kinds of people find and follow Jesus through gospel-centered ministry. We believe that one died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We do so no longer. It is the love of Christ that compels us deeper and deeper and deeper into the heart of God. The worst thing you can ever, ever do while trying to live out faith in Christ is to see God primarily as an angry judge in his posture to you. That is a biblically unfaithful way to see him. Rather than a heavenly father. And some of you had bad dads, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Some of you had really bad dads. But I'm telling you, what happened to you at the hands of your father or didn't happen to you does not define God as a heavenly father. God presents to us as a heavenly father the picture of what earthly fathers should be like. And he pours out his love for us on the cross in and through Jesus Christ, taking on himself the sin and the penalty for sin of all of the world. The way that you and I position ourselves for our lives to shine, right? 
for our lives to bear good fruit and good works is to remain rooted in Christ. And in doing so, to be compelled by Christ's love as we move forward day in and day out as followers of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you were in our um, multi-week study on his life from uh, Eric Metaxas' biography of him last fall. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, theologian, a thinker, and author in Germany in the 20s, 30s, um, 40s. Ended up being executed at a concentration camp for his resistance uh, to Hitler and the Nazi party. But Bonhoeffer wrote, among many of his books, a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, Bonhoeffer just speaks about what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Bonhoeffer says this in The Cost of Discipleship, cheap grace is grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. I just tell you, God's word knows of no such grace. Jesus is very clear that the world will know those who are his followers. That there will be something peculiar about us as we live in a way that is different than the world. Even while in the world. My prayer for us, my prayer for you as you leave here, is that you'll leave here and be honest with yourself. Where am I completely out of alignment with what I know to be true, what I believe to be true? And just bring that before God. Right? Trust yourself to the good and gracious care of the one who loves you, the one who created you, the one who knows you better than you know yourself, the one who's redeemed you. And just go before him confess it right confess it ask for his forgiveness and ask him to help you position yourself day in and day out to receive his grace and mercy and to experience the change that god so desires in your life and mine let's stand and pray and then we'll respond to god as we worship